I think about 2017 or so. Yeah. Right, 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 right around the time I started working in Monash, we uh Yeah, that's it. Caught up. Going back yeah. five years now, I guess. Yep. And we had all those yarns about um you know, like this kind of ethnophysics. Yeah. Ethno astrophysics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so there are a few you, interesting you, chats over a few cups of coffee. Yeah. Uh, Nearly got a couple of projects started a couple of times, but um, it wasn't a research-friendly time or environment, like, you know, for all that kind of cross-pollination. So off we went, greener pastures, sniff around, trying to start up our own labs and institutes. And um, I think we did something for the Royal Society at some stage. Yeah, we did. We did a little campaign for them, which was great. Yeah, and we were looking into the Tunguska Crater. Oh, I yeah, think it was mostly stuff, um, right. yeah, mostly about meteors. Yeah, that's awesome. And and all of that law, you know. So you're you're bringing in that science and astrophysics and talking all that up, and then um, um, your work is about. It's interesting because it's not like you're out there extracting, collecting, collating, curating, um, you know, indigenous knowledge, so much as you're bringing a scientific narrative alongside the indigenous um, narratives, scientific narratives in, in dialogue, um, which is really interesting, you know, and um, I think you, you seek to find all the common points of intersection and, um, and, and, and parts where one can inform the other. And it's, it's kind of, I don't know, I've, I've always found it to be exciting, really exciting work and your approach to be really, um, um unusually unusually ethical like more ethical than the institutions require <laughs> of you almost to the point of like, what's in this for him um <laughs> at all was was yeah, my, well, was my main question um you know so you've got so you've got your um your book coming out of it that's 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 bringing together a lot of yarns with elders um you know who you have as as, as sort of co-authors and um, you know, uh, got all the advance on royalties and all that kind of thing, and your um, all the proceeds are going to charity. Then, um, so you're very much bringing forward and centering all those elder voices, which is which is um, you know, a little bit above and beyond. Um, yeah, and that's coming out. The book's coming out now. 
Yeah, it comes up the first of March. It's it's been a work in progress since around yeah. the time that we we started chatting back in 2017, four or five years, five years now. Yeah. And it was just one of those things. I mean, years ago when I got my very first academic job, I was working for Martin Akita at UNSW, mm. and he's the uh, one. You know, Straight Islander. Academic. Yeah, Torres Strait Islander academic. Yeah. Uh, first Islander to get a PhD. Wrote savaging the disciplines, disciplining the savages. You know groundbreaking work and just got a call from him one day seeing if i want to come in for a for a chat and i was like oh yeah all right and we met up i i remember i, I write about it in the book a little bit he seemed a little bit surprised because I, I don't think he realized i was american he's like whoa oh, where are you from he just here's a sort of cornbread accent you know and um yeah he offered me a job and and it was really um a phenomenal time to sit down. So we sat down in a room and I remember him actually getting on a marker board and saying, okay, here's how we're gonna progress the discipline of indigenous astronomy and your career because mm. they're attached. And we sort of had all these points we're gonna do over the years. And you know, the book was always one of those major things. So I've always had that timeline in mind, but I've always kept in mind things that he told me. Um, and one of the, you know, my motivation for getting on all of this anyway was the idiot saying, oh, there, there's there's no science in indigenous knowledge. They're just myths and legends. There's no science there. And I'm like, oh, bullshit. Of course, there's science here. And I got so sick and tired of trying to explain that to people. I thought, I'll just write a, I'll write a book about it. And that's the main mm. point of the book. Mm. Um, you know, in, in indigenous sciences and Western sciences, because even within those areas, not they're not the same necessarily. They're not the same with each other, but there's a huge overlap. And, mm. you know, people- Well, it's exactly the same way that none of the disciplines are the same as each other exactly right in the sciences themselves in the sciences you move between disciplines and areas of knowledge and um you know and i mean i think so i think um it's mostly maori science seems to seems to have gained the most institutional cred um out there because you find that like i don't know so when you they're doing your foi or for codes or whatever and you're looking through all the lists of what's there it's like you know maori 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 vague general indigenous maori 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 vague indigenous <laughs> well, they've actually got um indigenous astronomy and cosmology as a four code now yeah oh i wow. found that out by accident a few weeks ago i was like yes finally i don't have to put my stuff in other studies in human society yeah so yeah i had to put my four codes as was kind of here, Ronnie he's, Matamua. Oh wow! He's, he's he, you know, the story. His story is phenomenal. I, I sort of mentioned a bit in the book, and we can chat about it later. So what's that called? Ma- Matariki. Matariki, the star of the year. Right. So Matariki is is the Pleiades. Ah, the rising sisters. of the Pleiades in the early morning after a particular lunar phase, you know, signifies the start of the Maori New Year. And as of this year, that's actually a public holiday in New Zealand now. Um, oh, yeah. through their dedicated years of work but yeah you're exactly right you know they they've really got that together over there we're here this you know yeah scattered and fragmented yeah 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 maori complain about their settlers a lot but it, it's it's like <laughs> and the rest of us in the world are like hey like you know you got it pretty good yeah it's bad but i tell you <laughs> it could be worse yeah I guess it could be a lot of spectrum out there and yeah yeah you know, it shouldn't be we shouldn't have the spectrum at all it should be yeah. you know not the situation but yeah yeah i mean it's it's it is good to see the public really embracing maori traditional knowledge but they i mm. mean 
compared to Australia, for example, yep. the public is much more on board with, with accepting. They are. They still haven't worked out the kinks, money. like culturally, yeah. you know, of, yeah. you know, what's appropriation, what's extractive, you know, they still haven't worked that out yet. But I mean, nobody has, you know, um, you know, that's, there's a few more decades, I reckon, before that even starts to like, I mean, even any kind of way of being uh, in any kind of decent relation together is going to emerge. Um, it, it, it happens at the micro level, though. Yeah, like no, in in, in really small groups or, or pairs. So our relationship, you know, it's you can see it there how it, it works. We're, we're in relation. We're in good relation. Um, you know, and we can say anything and um, and and work through it exactly you know, right. without getting too uh, butthurt about anything. And, you know, or if we feel like it, then, yeah, we might punch on for a bit. But yeah. that's all right. You know, that's a good relation. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. You know, sometimes we might, you know, I've certainly been known plenty of times in my life to say something stupid. Mm. But, you know, saying something stupid and either through self-reflection or having somebody call me out and then reflecting on that and thinking about it and, you know, changing changing things for the better over time. Yep. It's not a bad thing. Mm. And um, I don't think that, you know... We've all said some stupid shit before. And something mm. I said 10 years ago, you know, those things I said 10 years ago, I wouldn't say today. Those mm. things I said in my teens, geez, I'm glad we didn't have social media in my teens, you know. But we're not we're not fixed to that point in time as to who we are. We also mm. don't need thousands of people dogpiling on us if we say something a bit silly. You know, we can we can learn from this and and, and start moving forward. So yeah, it's great to have mm. these kinds of mm. This chemistry and the rapport, we can chat about things and just sort of bring it out in the open and mm, mm. have some discussions. And you know, this this book has been such um, and the research overall. I mean, the book is just sort of a popular condensed version of the work we've been doing for fifteen years, fourteen years now. Yeah, it's been a hell of a learning journey and process for me. Mm. Um, I know that's not even close to being over. Mm. There's never a point where I think that I've got everything figured out or I know it all. Most of the time I'm sitting here, there's time yeah. goes on and realize no, no less and less. And yeah, you know, it's 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 great to get some lessons from other people from around here and around the world. Yeah. yeah well, you? it seems to me that you know what 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 your role is 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 facilitating dialogues between disciplines that are unnecessarily, you know, not in good relation and not in dialogue. And that's you know, um you know, um, that's actually, you know, uh, addressing some asymmetries and stuff like that. Um, and bring un un unfortunately, because of the extractive relation of the kind of, um, you know, more pseudoscientific kind of new agey, bloody wellness, astrology, etc. You know, community that's on the periphery, like not even on the periphery, but like way out in another galaxy from science, you know, you've got all these, you know, Theosophy, anthroposophy, um, you know, weird stuff like like Steiner schools. Well, you, know, you can't start reading until you're seven because your milk teeth have to come out and your milk teeth are a remnant of your previous life when you were advancing through, you know, different races um, to advance towards the, 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 the pinnacle of becoming an Aryan. So, you know, you're not capable of reading until until that that uh inferior <laughs> previous racial caste that you belong to has dropped out of your mouth what a crock of 
crap. You know, and of course they can't say that anymore, but they still have it. They're still there and waiting for them teeth to drop out before they teach them to read. It's like, hey, hey, <laughs> like, this is weird. It's like new age Nazi stuff, like, stop it. Anyway, they're all there doing their thumb knitting and tie dyes and bloody talking up wellness and selling their supplements and, 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 and just insane, insane stuff. This whole sort of conspirituality stuff that's grown up out of that. So unfortunately, all of them just love to extract bits and pieces and snippets from indigenous um, knowledge. And so that it's kind of, you know, seen as the feedstock for all of this stuff. Like you you get to just grab a dream catcher and throw that in the mix. And so suddenly our science, um, well, not suddenly, but, you know, over the century, our science is sort of, uh, you know, it's, it's pseudoscience. It's thrown in with, lumped in with all that. It's yeah. like, oh my God. I mean, that didn't happen to Einstein. You know, that, that didn't happen to, um, that didn't happen to the physics, like the discipline of physics when it got co-opted by the secret, you know, to be like, oh, electrons do this. So you can bloody manifest a Ferrari with your positive thoughts. Well, you're cancer by having a good attitude because of, you know, particles, because yeah, of yeah. Einstein, you know, they didn't bloody suddenly call quantum physics freaking pseudoscience because of that anyway i get i get i get wild about this well that's the problem because you get those wellness types and I've, I've seen it so much they love grabbing quantum mechanics it's got that that aura of mystery it almost seems intangible i mean we're literally touching everything this is i can touch my hand because of quantum mechanics but the people who i find talk the most about quantum mechanics know the least about it <laughs> and they think they know about it and they <laughs> You know, they yeah, might yeah. Even know a couple of terms. They might even know something about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle or, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the wave equation. I'm like, what is uh, I'm, I'm guilty what of hipster, yeah. hipster pop sciencing that a little bit. You know, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with having a stab <laughs> You can have a little stab yeah, at that. That's great. That's what you want. You can do some, you can do some like, uh, you know, bad faith guru stuff. Like, it's almost impossible to speak outside of that discourse now because that's, that's how everybody's thinking. Yeah. reading so um yeah. you gotta do a little bit of woo yeah you gotta do a little bit of woo and wow yeah you bring well, any of that into your book point. you know you have well not that's not the point you have you have a bit of fun discussing these crazy ideas because yeah. quantum mechanics i mean you know i think richard Feynman said it. anybody who thinks they understand quantum mechanics doesn't you know even mm. the scientists working on it don't because it's so strange and abstract and counter to our normal day-to-day life yeah. And that's, there's nothing wrong with trying to understand that and even bouncing some weird ideas around and we can sit and mm. have a beer or coffee and just chat about crazy stuff and have some fun with it. But then when you get the people, the, you know, self-proclaimed gurus who are saying, oh, well, because of quantum mechanics, our snake oil is going to work for you. Mm. You're like, well, hang on. Now you've crossed a big line. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, that's a whole different situation. You know, I, yeah. When I first moved to Australia, I had that I was in student accommodation. It was one of these five bedroom apartments. Uh, at UNSW and I had four other roommates right and and one of them she was from the U.S. and she's like oh you studied you do physics oh I love quantum mechanics and was all excited and wanted to know if I had a book so I was like yeah I went and I got the undergraduate Griffiths introduction to quantum mechanics <laughs> I was like here you go you know um unless you're up to par on partial differential equations you're not going to get much out of this but here here have it you know have a look and I was happy to let her borrow it and then yeah one day I was walking, I was either vacuuming the floor and I looked in, in her room, which was a bit of a mess. And I saw it lying in the middle of the floor. And I'm like, nope, that's mine. 
yoink. Yep. Like never, never an attempt to read it, but there were all kinds you know, around the apartment, the sort of pop sci, uh, pop pseudo sci, I should say, you know, yeah, quantum yeah. mechanics books. But anyway, yeah, it's, 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 it's a yeah, weird this thing. Is, yeah, all this, this stuff is when, when you start to fuse, I don't know, it's weird because, you know, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be separated from, from spirituality science but then at the same time it's like it kind of has to be until you learn to <laughs> play well with others ah oh, it yeah because usually usually basically the problem is they take the worst parts of science like the crappiest science and then they take the worst parts of spirituality the crappiest parts and and they just kind of mash them together and just make it even crappier um Ah, it's just, it's just really annoying. And there's no way to talk about it. That's not, you know, making you into a, you know, somebody who's still got a Blackberry, you know, like, ah, oh, rigor, you've got to have rigor. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hate that. I hate that word rigor. Don't say rigor. Yeah, I know you hate it. You hate it, don't you? You little grifter. Yeah. Grifting bastard it, uh... selling supplements on your YouTube channel. Yeah. Get it. away from me. You ugly little girl. Anyway. That was one of the biggest challenges I had with this book and trying to trying to convey what science is. And science isn't one thing. Science is a lot of things. And whenever I give guest lectures for in history and philosophy of science, which I'm doing tomorrow morning, um, always ask the question, you know, what is science? And of course, the academics in the front row just piss themselves laughing and they're shaking their heads. And the students are like, uh, you know, it's not an easy thing to define you know, trying to understand the world around us through mm. some kind of process. Mm. But, um, you know, Western science and indigenous science is the one of the major things that they definitely do not cross over is the concept yeah. of spirituality. Yeah. Because Western science has that rejection of supernatural causation. And mm. for the questions they're trying to ask, it makes perfect sense. Mm. You know, you can't say, oh, well, we don't know how this works. Oh, God did it or mm. whatever. You know, you, you can't do that. And so for that reason, you know, that aspect of Western science has a real benefit, yep. but it comes at a cost yep. because you separate that connection of what of meaning mm. and purpose and stuff mm. that you see in the indigenous. Well, knowledge. look, there's no, um, there's no relatedness and connectedness yeah. in Western science because there's no trust. Yeah. It's, it's exactly because right. the, the culture has scaled so much and it's all about scale. So it's millions of people all linked together, but weakly linked uh, because of that, there can't be trust because nothing's transparent. You know, you can be a bad actor and get away with it. So therefore you need massive systems of checks and balances to ensure that, you know, due diligence is being done. And, and then you need institutions, you know, to actually enforce that. And then you need like, <laughs> then those institutions are subject to corruption as well, or oh, sort of laziness right. or bureaucratic, just, you know, stagnation, etc. So, but, you know, fighting your way just through that absolutely impossible minefield of, of grants and applications and ethics and peer review, peer review, peer review, and, and, and editing and over when you get through that, you know, it, it is the idea is that you get through and therefore there's some general likelihood that your work can be trusted, that yeah. you're not, that you're not grifting. Yeah, exactly you know, right. Um, you know, and the, the fact is there are a lot of grifters now who can circumvent that. All they have to have is a hypothesis and start talking about it like it's fact. 
Yeah. And um, but but always preface that with a critique of um, of academia, um, you know that you know and 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 you know presenting yourself as someone who's on the outside and someone who's been persecuted and all that sort of thing, and then you get a whole heap of you know usually males, millions of them who feel excluded and persecuted and afraid, and and then they start listening to your bullshit and off you go. You can make more than you know a dean. <laughs> at a university talking up that shit. So what's the point of doing any of it? You know, so you have plenty of people just get their doctorate and then do that. Um, but see, that's the difference between Western science and indigenous science. The only difference is, um, you know, scale and therefore trust. You know, because the indigenous stuff is coming out of a worldview, a localized worldview, but a localized worldview that's networked with a lot of other territories and different language groups as well. Um, you know, and, and that, that there are, there are systems in place, but, you know, with people who are known to each other and going right back thousands of years, you know, there's, there's no room to grift in there. So you don't need a lot of the same checks and balances, but it's still very rigorous in terms of, you know, there is, there are processes that are collective and communal around verification and falsification you know of data and 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 throughout your, your your collective analysis and agreeing on a narrative of of what has happened and what sound accompanied that uh that meteor what color was it where did it come from in the sky what time of year was it these are all there's all these data points data sets and you know everybody's you know together and talking it up and and then um, listening to the authoritative elders as well, who are bringing uh, some deeper time, you know, data sets from that so that there can be a consensus and a decision around what does that mean and what has that changed in the system, you know, that that, that uh, celestial body has entered and come from, you know. So, yeah, it, it's there is rigor there. Um, but what there isn't is a um, is a big centralized institutional sort of set of checks and balances to um, you know um, to try and squeeze trust out of a trustless culture. <laughs> exactly right. I, mean, I remember yeah. um, you know part of part of the journey of going through this you know learning indigenous and Western sciences is people you know Western trained people. Well, how do you know what the elders are telling you is true? They could be making things up. And that was actually one of the, the issues with the early ethics applications and applying for grants is we mm. weren't allowed to pay the elders because there was this strange idea that if we paid elders, they would just tell us anything that we want to hear just to keep the money flowing. And I'm like, yeah. what? What? Are you mm. kidding me? Like, no. Well, there is a phenomenon called um, that's referred to as gratuitous con concurrence. Mm. And but that's seldom yeah, mo that's, motivated yeah, that's, by money. That's that's motivated usually by fear of you know we better tell this dude whatever he wants or um you know who know he might start killing us or <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, get wild that, and yeah, call the police like we don't know we, we can't yeah, trust what this person gonna do quick make him happy what does yeah. he want to hear all right we'll tell him that well, no, yeah. um yeah it's seldom motivated by by yeah that it's it's motivated by you know the desire to survive yeah there's a long history of that you know it's one of those things I was learning about that. So it was one of those things I'm always trying to be careful and conscious of those things too. But you know, when I, when people ask me that, I'm like, well, when you look at this cultural knowledge, if, if it doesn't work, 
it's going to be self-evident that it doesn't work. Mm. Like you're not going to have knowledge about something and say this, you know, relates to this or this informs that. Mm. And if it doesn't, then mm. what's the purpose? Like it's mm. you know, like if you say I'm going to watch that star because when I watch that star and when this bird starts chirping a particular song, mm. this plant is going to be fruiting. Okay, yeah, kind of a random example, but. If that wasn't the case, then you're not going to be able to predict when that's going to happen. And you're, yeah, yeah you know, I mean, like it's, it's self-evident that these things are going to be, mm. are going to work. It's not mm. like you can just make up bullshit, put it in a book and put quantum on the front with the yeah. crystal floating above a, you know. And a, it's not like you have one informant that you're relying on. Yeah, exactly. You right. know, and just going, oh, well, this guy said it, so it's the truth. It's, you know, you have several. So, you know, you can see where they reference, where they line up, where they contradict, etc. Yeah. You know, but then you're bringing it alongside the scientific narrative. And then you find, you find, um, you find those correlations. You know, you find that geological record is actually lining up with the story. And it's like, well, you know, I'm not just here going, ah, oh, I'm reporting every word that this fella said and just telling you it's the truth and calling it science. That's pseudoscience. That's not what you do. Many people think that's what I do. They think my job is to go out, interview an elder, transcribe what they say, put it in a paper and publish it. And that's all I do. And then I, and then I guess I collect my huge royalty checks and buy a Ferrari. I mean, what the (laughs) hell? able to actually buy a place for the first time in my life and it literally took every dime that i had and i only skimmed in the very bottom you know i'm just like if people knew how little i actually had to my name they might be surprised because I, I you know as professors we're rolling in cash i'm like no and also mm-hmm. that's not how this work works at all because i've sat with communities and had two or three elders tell me slightly different things and you know and and, and that's fine my job is to go in there and understand the underlying science behind it. And it's not, mm. as, as you've talked about, it's not like I'm, I'm doing an underlying Western science. At the mm. foundation levels, it's the same thing no matter mm. what. When I mm. teach students about uh, scintillation of stars or how the lunar phases work or how solstices work, mm. I'm not saying, well, here's the Western way of knowing. Like, no, people figured this out a long freaking time ago yeah. before Western science was ever a thing. I'm not... Yeah putting it in the framework of Western science and just showing how those two areas work together and yeah. how close they are. And, and basically, so when somebody says, oh, indigenous knowledge has no science, they say, bullshit, yes, it does, read this, you know? Yeah. And if they want more, and look, it's all not, the what you're doing is not the sort of soft skill of cross-cultural, you know, dialogue. You're, you're just, uh, what, what, what you're doing is, what you're doing is interdisciplinary science. Mm. It's like you, you're bringing two different scientific disciplines together as, you know, as science must. You don't have, you don't have, you don't have vaccines without that. You don't have mobile phones without that. You know, that's, that's how, that's how, that's how stuff gets done. Um, You know, different uh, disciplines talking to each other. Um, And yeah, that's, that's basically what you're doing here, which is pretty cool. Um, It it also really honors those, those elders and, um, you know, elevates them and not in some honorary status way, but no, just no. to, you know, as to, true respect as, you know, uh, professors of their own disciplines. Well, exactly uh, right. Yeah. They, this, this, this is their knowledge. They know this stuff. And and one thing that I, I talk about, and I'm, I mentioned in the book, I'll be saying that a lot. I mentioned in the book, but um, they've always been, the different elders I've worked with, no matter where they are, there's always been a few characteristics that I've noticed. And a lot of them have had experience working with academics over the years. 
you know, so they've learned a bit of the process. And one of the things that I, I actually love it when this happens, because uh, it always happens when I'm not expecting it. Hmm. They're sitting down, having a chat, and either I'm recording on a camcorder, or writing notes down, whatever they would they prefer to be done. Hmm. And, you know, sort of, okay, yeah, I'm getting ready to take off. All right, thanks for meeting. And as soon as I've got everything packed up, I'm like, oh yeah, we, because this reminds me when I told you about this. And then in a minute, they just dive into the really deep stuff, yeah. knowing that I'm sitting here, like, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. You know? It'd be like, like, a, like, a, like a physics professor talking about general relativity to a, a year five student. You know, they just dive straight into the field equations. You're like, what? You know, yeah. they dive into that level of knowledge. And there's always a little bit of a, a look in the eye of like, just letting you know, I've been sitting here sharing stuff with you, but what I've given you is like the kindergarten level. And you might think that you're learning a lot and you might think you've got it all figured yeah. out and you're all excited, just letting you know, you're not even close, but yeah. not in a, it's not in a sort of mean or, you know, yeah. horrible way. It's just a little reminder. It's like, there's, there's still yeah. a lot more to this. And it's yeah. like, oh shit, yeah. Well, you, I mean, you know, you, you first level, first year undergrad, bloody level knowledge is um that's restricted knowledge mm. you can only get that after you pass through you know um your initiation and then um and then you have that and it's you know and i guess i guess that's our bureaucracy that it's there <laughs> exactly right. um yeah. but that that that's about uh sort of safety of you know you don't give a kid a shotgun yeah exactly right like exactly you don't right. you don't give a narcissist a twitter account you know, you don't, <laughs> you don't, you don't give like, uh, you know, higher celestial knowledge, you know, uh, to a 14 year old who's, who's going to try and do black magic with it. You know, uh, like you, you, you know, when, when knowledge becomes uh, dangerous, you know, when knowledge, you know, potentially is power, then it becomes restricted knowledge and you have to actually, you know, you have to pass through, um, you have to pass through ceremony that that changes you at that the, at the biological level at the chemical level that for a start makes your brain um it transforms physically transforms your brain um and your entire system and your neurological system that extends out in the landscape it completely changes the architecture of that so you can even just cope with receiving that knowledge anyway you know, it's, um, it's full on and it's, uh, you get sick if you, um, you know, if you access any of that knowledge before you've been through that, it, it'll mess you up. You know, it's, um, you know, the, <laughs> it's pretty full on stuff. And if you look at, and it's sort of every 15 years you go through that and, and also, and, and, and ascend to the next level until you can, you know, it's like, um, uh, it's like some weird Freemasonry stuff, but it's kind of necessary. <laughs> Yeah, well, you gotta, you've got to prove yourself. You've got to yeah. You well, can. in that very senior elderhood, you know, you um, your terrestrial totems and totemic knowledge and, and knowledge, you finish off passing that onto, you know, those younger elders. You pass that on to others and get rid of that completely. And so that very senior elderhood, they're just completely dwelling in that celestial totemic um, level of knowledge. And that's like, you know, uh, full mystery stuff. That's why, you know, there's that extreme respect for those people and you, you've got to look after them and make sure they can do that work. Um, you know, cause they're kind of keeping creation in motion. <laughs> cause somebody has to do that ceremony. 
you know, for that part and keep the attention on that and keeping that increase cycles happening, you know, in the universe because um, well, someone's got to do it. And Captain Marvel, she ain't up to it. That girl, she, <laughs> she can't yeah. get it done. Can't get it done. Um, although she did get the haircut. She, she got a nice haircut. I have no idea what you're talking about. Eventually. Captain Marvel. You don't watch Marvel movies. I don't watch. I don't, I've never been into the whole superhero yeah, yeah. movie. My anyway. younger brother does. He loves that shit. I've just never. I've, I've seen a couple of them. She had long hair. <laughs> then she had short hair. Anyway, that's all you need to know about the Marvel Universe. That happened to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Hey, proper shiny head now. Yeah, right. Uh, I had a full head of hair before I started writing the book. Yeah, that's it. No, book will do that to you. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was telling somebody the other day, it's like, you know, I was, you know I'm, I'm so happy to see it done. But I remember a year, year and a half ago, yeah. can I just have the finished thing in my hands of going through yeah. the process because it's destroying me? And how, you know, how I had to go see like four counselors and a psychiatrist while writing because it was just breaking me down, the pressure of everything. Hmm. And then I'm like, I never want to repeat that again. Anyway, my yep. next book is going to be out in six months. You know, so like once you get through it, you're like, okay, it's fine. You jump right into the next one. So yeah. yeah, yeah, it's hard because you have to walk a fine line of. You have to kind of, uh, you have to kind of not care, yeah. what people think at the same time as being really intensely aware of, of the audience and what they need. Um, so you, you know, you have to be in relation and be writing from a kind of a really, you know, intensely connected you know related way of being in the world like you have to be writing from that at the same time as somehow insulating yourself from it because you know it's you can't handle that scale no it should you know. be that we're able to just write for the people in our bioregion yeah you know and that everybody can write and that we're all passing these things around and building our knowledge locally like that and maybe trading it then beyond um i don't know but yeah. then that works better with orality, you know, in our old way. It sort of should be like that because that's manageable. You can be accountable to your word, accountable for your word, and you can know specifically the people that you're writing for. But to be writing for an amorphous mass of people who are basically a marketplace, you're making yourself vulnerable to audience capture. And audience capture is usually the lowest common denominator of, you know, whatever overly simplified ideology is, is, is floating around in your marketplace. And that, that's what I think happens to all of these um, pseudoscientists, all these, like, you know, doctors and professors who just bloody throw in the towel and go, oh, stuff it, I can make a million dollars in a year, or I can, you know, slave away in this, this bureaucracy doing everything with extreme rigor and bloody you know, retire with bloody $500 a week pension or something, stuff that I'm going to make my millions right now. I'm going to make it in clicks. Um, I yeah. Mean, those people, as much as I dislike them, they learn how to play that game. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Target the, the, but you got to line and the lowest common mm -hmm. denominator. You got to do that. If you want to eat, if you yeah. want to eat and be sheltered. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's the trick though, you know, cause you, you don't want to be, uh, you want to maintain your integrity. And but also if you're you know working with communities, you know there's a um, there's an obligation there, 
with the the you know the knowledge that you're working with and and coming alongside and all those stories and voices you know of vulnerable people it's like well yeah you don't it's not an option for you (laughs) you can't go that other way yeah that's why i always frame the stuff that i'm doing regardless of who who signs my paycheck which is the Mm. university or grant body or whatever at the end of the day i work for the communities Mm. and you know it's it's always been an important distinction for me to you know think about myself as well as talk to others about that Mm. they're the ones calling the shots not me i can bring my ideas Mm. that they want and we come together and and discuss and negotiate what's going to happen i mean i'm talking to elders for years about doing this book and yeah and they were happy with it i mean we didn't know what was gonna we didn't know exactly how it was Mm. gonna be done i initially wanted every elder that i'd ever worked with or if their knowledge was included to have them all listed as sort of like co-authors but that would have been Mm. like a hundred and you know then we were trying to find well should i find somebody else to write with but that turned out to be really difficult because i'm the one who's been doing all the work and i could get somebody else on but it would almost feel weird or tokenistic or something and and i approached a few people and they were like well i mean it's a great idea but you've already got half the book written and it's going to be yeah i don't really know what i'm going to contribute and i was really struggling with that when Hmm. you know when i when i sat down with uh with marcia and she said we'll get the elders have them okay well it seems so obvious yeah i went back to my publisher and i said okay well I want to have the elders co-authors. How do we do this? Mm. Because you know, it's not the the book. Despite what some people think, isn't just what I decided I wanted to do that day. Mm. You're know, mm. bound by how the processes of libraries work, how publishers yeah. work, how they categorize things, how they do all that stuff. Yeah. You know, when the book is released, it's released in March first because that's a particular time for the market. They release mm. books like this. You don't do it before Christmas. Mm. You don't do it too late in the year. Like they've got all this stuff worked out, and I've got to work within that frame. And so we thought, okay, well, I want to be able to put elders down. And they're like, well, because for trade books in the industry, you can have up to seven authors. Yeah. So you can pick six elders. I'm like, okay, I've got stuff from all around the world in here, but there are six elders that I've worked with Mm. a lot. We've published papers with their co-authors on academic research. Well, those are the ones. And those are the ones that are, that are Mm. uh, co-authors in the book. And they are um, Gillard Michael Anderson, John Barson passed away a few years ago, but his family's been happy. He was happy for stuff to be shared. David Bozen, Ron Day, Sigar Passi, and Alo Tapin. You know, mm. they're all co-authors in the book. And the, the other challenge I had trying to figure this out is I knew, look, I'm a white American guy from the redneck mid-Missouri. I'm going to get destroyed if I come out writing about indigenous knowledges. Mm. How do we do this? Like, you know, mm. I didn't I didn't write this book necessarily for Aboriginal communities. I'm like, well, you guys already know this stuff. You know, I actually kind of wrote it well for everybody, but my my mind was really focused on people who, you know, keep saying, oh, there's no real science there. I don't know about that. I'm like, there is. And here, let's let's go into detail. Let's explain how and why. So you can see just uh, how complex and detailed this stuff mm. is. You mm. can see things where discoveries were made by indigenous peoples around the world long before Western science, but weren't given credit. Well, we address that in here. How new things are, you know, we're, we're realizing things we didn't know before in the sciences exactly on that part. And then how can we how can we come and work together? And, you know, that's that's the main kind of focus of the book. But, you know, how do you write a trade book? Because, you know, Santa mm. was, was phenomenal. It's, it's first person. How do mm. I write a first-person book? 
um, without centering myself. I'm trying to center mm. the elders, but you've got to write about your experiences and things that happened to you. And and I'm sure I'm going to get there's going to be criticism because I talk mm. about you know experiences I had and what you know just fun little stories and stuff like that that are threaded throughout the book. But mm. for me, the point of the book isn't about me. You know, mm. I'm this you know this ignorant yeah. you know, American who came in to Australia from an astronomy background who. My motivation for doing all of this is from when I came to Australia as a study abroad student back in 2003. Mm. One yeah. semester, um, Mars was at its closest approach to the Earth in like 60,000 years. Mm. So the observatory on campus was holding a telescope viewing for the public. And one of the other women who was from uh, from Indiana, uh, we we walked down to check it out. And you know, at that time, I hadn't I didn't know anything about Aboriginal culture, Australian history. You know, I knew what I had seen in Crocodile Dundee and Steve Irwin, you know, very limited, but I'd always had a fascination with Australia. So I thought, okay, you know, I thought, well, what about other, what's Aboriginal knowledge of, of Mars or stars? Mm. And the person said, oh, they didn't really have anything. They had a few names and some stories, but didn't have anything there. And I, I said, oh, well, you know, a lot of the other people in my group that I came with, um, they're all doing the first year indigenous studies course. I wasn't, I was doing upper level astrophysics at the time. And I said, they were telling me a bit about the history here about how so many people were killed by colonists mm. when, when, you know, the British arrived. And this person said, well, yeah, well, no, not all of them, unfortunately. Oh, I mean, the other student, I really like, you know, that you, the scene in the Simpsons where Bart and Lisa sort of look at his eyes, just move towards each mm. other. Exactly what happened. Mm. I'm like, what did you say? We're like, smile and walk away. We're like, mm. what the hell was that? And that was my first experience sort of in Australia mm. seeing that, you know, and that, that, I mean, I, re I always remembered that. It was one of the more memorable experiences I had, not in a positive. Mm. Everything mm. else that I did in Australia, I loved. I fell in love with the place. I moved back a couple of years later and I've been here ever since then. Mm. That was always in the back of my head. So when I came down here to study astrophysics, I was looking for stars orbiting distant planets, that was just always eating away at me. And I, I always found that I was more interested in the social side of astronomy. And I was better at it, frankly. And I thought, well, hang on. And I remember just grabbing a few books around, not much was available on that. Mm. And I remember just seeing some, you know, some of the, the story, you know, collections of Aboriginal stories and things, you know. Um, and I just see if you know, I'm like, oh, here's some stuff about, about the stars, the sun. And I'm like, there's a narrative that's discussing this, but when mm. you look and unpack it, there's tons of science here. Yeah. I was like, well, how is nobody looking at this? This, this is right here. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm not a genius. I mean, you don't have, I mean, how, how come nobody's seeing this? And that's when I was like mm. getting into this idea of, of learning more about that. And that's when I contacted an academic who was kind of working in this space as a hobby and came in and started working on this topic. And that's, that's where it all stemmed from, really from that, that mm. comment is a motivational force. Mm. Well, I think it's, um, I mean, you say like, you know, oh, what's, what's the relevance? You're just an American kind of thing. But I mean, it kind of helps to have, um, you know, if you've got somebody who's fluent in all the settler codes, but has no, no personal cultural sort of, um, or even financial stake in, uh, in the settlement <laughs> well, yeah, where they yeah, are because yeah. they're coming from somewhere else. You know, I mean, yeah. you would have that stake back on Turtle Island and that would get in the way, 
and there'd be things yeah. you'd miss. But uh, here, it's just um, you know, I didn't you, have that. It's it's um, a while. It's a yeah. while. It's a it's a maybe even a decade or two before uh, you get your filters properly colonized uh, to this this particular <laughs> state. Well, that's it. Yeah, I remember coming when I came. Yeah, I, I realized you're after several years of doing this work and talking and my experiences with the elders. Mm. Uh, they oftentimes say, "Oh, you know, there were two two points to it. One, oh, you're American." Are you, are you from America? Can I'm American? Oh, and they they responded positively to that. Mm. And also, when they asked if I was an anthropologist, I said, no, I'm an astronomer. That they responded positively to. And then I mm. later on, you know, I learned about the historical context and why that was the case. And I would always have this sort of self-deprecating, um, you know, attitude, which I've had most of my life. And when I would comment about that, you know, I what, what eventually came out of that is saying, well, look, you know, you've got plenty of your own baggage from where you came from, but when you mm. came to Australia, you didn't grow up with all that that negative cultural baggage attached to Aboriginal people. Mm. You know? um, doesn't mean that I come in this beautiful enlightened spirit or anything, but I just didn't grow up in an environment where all that cultural baggage was there. Yeah, yeah. That was one of the reasons why the elders were more responsive is because I, I, I suppose they they mm. figured that if I had been Australian, they, they would have trusted me less. Yeah, yeah. It would have been that history. And they're like, what are you really yeah. up to? But being the American, and you know, we 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 come off a bit loud, brash, and sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, know, you um, we've got our own mannerisms, right? You've been you've been programmed for settler colonialism, and then so you come into here, and it's all colonialism, yeah. and uh, you know the protocols haven't haven't sorted them out to interface that yeah. correctly yet. So you you you, you get a bit of a um, a quiet space in between where things aren't quite working properly and it's all glitching um to be able to see things uh, as they are and it's hard then once you see things as they are it's hard to unsee it yeah exactly yeah. right and, and after having gone through this journey here for 15 16 years now when i think back to my life in the u.s because i was a week shy of 28 when i moved to australia it's like wow i i you know what I didn't realize or think about or know or any of that kind of stuff mm. back when I was was back at home, um, really eye opening, mm. uh, because there was a lot of stuff around the periphery we just didn't know about or think much about. And um, having been here and working in this space, and you know, I've learned a little bit since I've been here. Still got a, a, a Mount Everest to climb of that, but. Um, and now I go back and when I talk with family and friends, I sort of realize a lot of them don't. And it's like, it's really a good time for self-reflection in this, in this space. Because yeah, you do grow up mm. very much in a, a colonial system. Um, you know, I certainly did. So it's anyway, digressing on other things, but it was yeah, yeah. a real, really strange experience. And then, and of course, the, the astronomer anthropologist situation is funny because if about six years ago when I went to Hawaii, it's exactly opposite there because of Mauna Kea and what's been happening with the telescopes and the observatories, yeah, yeah. they've got a, you know, the, the Hawaiians there have a resentment against astronomers. And they're going to talk mm. about, they'd rather talk to an anthropologist over an astronomer where here it's quite different. And, mm. you know, those sorts of things always guided the interactions I had with the elders and how we chatted about stuff. But yeah, you know, at the end of the day, with all of this work, I wanted to ensure that the elders were the focal point of it. Mm. Um, I wanted to ensure that, they were the ones that are going to be, you know, benefiting from it. Mm. Um, they wanted, you know, mo the main thing they're mostly interested in is education. 
Hmm. Mostly for their students, but also for the general public. Because hmm. um, they, you know, when I mentioned that I was interested in this because I wanted to tell, you know, show people that, you know, you have science as well. They say, yeah, of course we have science. We've been saying that for years, but nobody will freaking listen. Well, I'm like, okay, hmm. well then I guess I can use my voice to, to do that, but still elevate the elders at the same time. And that yeah. was something Martin Oxford told me. You know, he's always very adamant. He says, yes, we are a people of culture. We're also a people of science. Hmm. And something he told me back then, which I've, I've, I think in the last couple of years, I've really had to take a tighter grip on, hmm. is when he brought me up to the tourist Strait for the first time, he says, you're here, you're doing this work with us because you're a scientist. Hmm. We want you to bring that element to this. Hmm. Don't ever lose your sense of scientific integrity, no matter what anybody else tries telling you. Hmm. But as soon as you do that, we're screwed. Yeah. And that was funny because it, it, you know, it was interesting for me coming out of, I, I, I did my uh, master's degree in astrophysics at UNSW and, hmm. and then to do a PhD in the Department of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University. So I jumped from that hard sciences field to the social sciences field. Now imagine sitting in a supervisor's meeting where you've got three supervisors. One is an astrophysicist with the CSIRO. Hmm. One is a postmodernist anthropologist. And the other one is a very eccentric British archaeologist who's, you know, who is the inspiration of a Terry Pratchett discourse character. Yeah. The discussion about what my PhD was going to be about was an absolute dog's breakfast. We couldn't even come to an agreement on why we didn't look at it, much less what we were, we were going to do. So people would, you know, some people would come in and say, oh, but you're just a postmodernist and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, you had no idea the whole first two years of my PhD was basically fighting this idea of postmodernism. I think later on, I understood the context a bit better, but mm. nowadays everything's getting getting put into this sort of, you know, these screaming points. And it's just funny when I think back the why my PhD became this piecemeal of, of smaller projects is because we couldn't come to an agreement. So I said, well, look, while we're fighting over what I'm going to do, I'm interested in in the concept of meteors and how did different cultures understand and conceptualize them. So I did the research, published a paper on that. All right. What about comets? Do a pub, you know, what about that? All right. What about meteorite craters? Do the research. For, what about uh, eclipses? What about this? What about that? And then I'm two years into my PhD. I'm like, well, I've got to have one more chunk of something. So I ended up surveying linear stone arrangements for their orientations. It all comes together under the, you know, the larger umbrella of, of Aboriginal astronomy, but there was no one comprehensive you know, thing that I just looked at. It was, it was more of an amalgamation of small research projects. And mm. that was because we couldn't come to an agreement on what I was going to do, mostly driven by this dynamic between having a, between, you know, having an astrophysicist and a postmodernist anthropologist trying to agree on this, mm. you know? So it's, it's just kind of weird to, to think about in retrospect how all that came about. And I would get flack, you know, science doesn't know everything. Science doesn't, well, of course, science doesn't know everything. That's why we saw scientists. You know, if we knew everything, we wouldn't have jobs, you know. But it was this sort of idea that um, there was a real hostility towards the sciences within some of the social sciences and humanities communities, which was the biggest flip and headbutt for me because I thought that, well, I think I'm going to have a lot of difficulty convincing all the, the astrophysicists, the physicists and the astronomers, the science community. I'm going to have a difficult time getting this across to them. I think I'm going to have, that's going to be an uphill battle. 
but you know what? The anthropologists, the sociologists, the archaeologists, they're going to get this. That's going to be mm. easy. And my experience was a polar opposite. Mm. The astrophysical community, which probably, I mean, I, I would argue is helped by the fact that I come from that background, so I know how to talk and write for that community. Um, the astrophysical community took it on board. I mean, they loved it. And, and now we're working with elders on major astrophysics research programs in the research. Mm. Um, got these fellowships for Aboriginal students wanting to do astronomy. We're doing community engagement. We've included this. And in, in, I mean, I'm teaching indigenous astronomy course in the School of Physics. I work in the School of Physics at Melbourne Uni. Yeah. My last three jobs having been indigenous centered. Yeah. It wasn't a problem. With well, astrophysicists love and astronomers in general love a story. Well, exactly right. But the story, yeah, but story usually is what's got them into that field. Because why would you specialize there except for the just that um, the wonder of the only really connected and place-based narratives that there are in in the entire Western world. So the problem with Western story is that it's placeless. But with the exception of stories from the night sky yeah, which point. are grounded in place like in sky camp there yeah, it's, those point. stories are about place but also cycles and time and so therefore you know it's the only really connected narrative so it's the only people who are doing good narrative thinking are people who are studying the stars in the western sciences which is why they get it they just like yeah. straight up they're like yeah bros yeah I gotcha. I, <laughs> I think you're right. It's probably one of the reasons I think, I mean, at least one of the reasons why astronomy is always the most popular of all the sciences. It always yeah. has been. Yeah. So that's, that, and that was, that was the real anchor point, I think, for being able to do this. Because lots of people have written about this intersection of knowledge, indigenous knowledge and science. It's, I'm mm. not the first person to do this by any means. Uh, and there have been a lot of people doing that with a whole load of different areas, maybe ecology or or something else. And, and that's great, that, that work is phenomenal, but there's something about astronomy that grabs people in a weird way and it just, it hooks them in. And that's why I think one of the reasons why this work has been so successful. Mm. It hasn't been because necessarily yeah. of anything I've done or anything, it's been because that topic, you know, so much of what people see in the media in this country, mm. if anything relating to Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, First Nations is all tends to always mm. be negative, or they frame it negative, even if it's not. Mm. They always put it in that context. Mm. But then doing something like astronomy, which not only are people interested in, but has this sort of um, idea among the public is of being the most difficult of all the sciences. Mm. I think if you ask most people to say like, "What's the smartest scientist?" Mm. they tend to go by people working in those spaces. Yeah, they'll go to Neil deGrasse Tyson, they'll go to Stephen Hawking, they'll go to whoever it happens to be. Yeah. And if you want to get somebody's attention. You know, even if you're a physicist, that's boring. Geophysicist, nothing mm. against them, but I was boring. So you're an astrophysicist. All of a sudden, people just sort of feel like, oh, ooh, yeah. ooh, you must be smart. I had when I was younger, still in my undergrad, I was given jobs purely because I studied astrophysics. Mm. Like there was there was a lot of there was a lot of clout in that, you know, mm. <laughs> in a really weird way. But I think bringing those two worlds together and trying to push that narrative towards mm. the positive end of the spectrum, I think that's one of the reasons why. Well, this work in indigenous astronomy has been so positive. Anytime you're, you're listening to a Queen Queen song, you can yeah. thank astrophysics. That's right. Because Brian May, he was a, he's an astrophysicist. Yeah, he was doing his PhD mm. at University College London. Yeah. And um, Queen got so big, he decided he was uh, apparently to the point where he was um, 
right at the end of his PhD, he just had to write up the thesis because, mm. you know, he'd done the previous two or three yeah. years of work. He ended up going back and completely. He did. Later, yeah, I think but, back, um, back in the mid-2000s, he went back. And apparently nobody but, had picked up on that work since he yeah. had been doing it in the 70s. He just went back, picked it up. Yeah. Nobody, you know, because you always got to worry about that. Is somebody else going to build on that research? And what you were doing years ago is is yeah. now old news. You know, my exoplanet stuff for my master's degree is so old. It's like the bottom of the you know, it's well, look, I have a theory that astrophysics is, um, <clears throat> because it has that narrative, that place-based narrative behind it, and because it's, it's, it's grounded in Sky Camp, and Sky Camp is embassy, Sky Camp is what brings people together and allows different narratives, even conflicting narratives, to sit alongside each other. Um, Sky Camp gives us collective sense-making. You know, it's it's those those are the stories that bring us together traditionally in our big gatherings with people from thousands of miles away, all different tribes coming together. You know, Sky Camp is the one. That's where the embassy lies. That's where the um, the ability to do comparative knowledge work, where the different disciplines come together. You know, even where they contradict, they don't conflict. You know. Um, and I guess that's what allows, you know, Brian May to say, no, 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 give this uh, weird looking kid a go. This Lebanese kid with big teeth. <laughs> yeah. give, the, give this, give this kid a, uh, this, give this kid a shot. And um, yeah, let, let's, let's, let's see, let's see how it goes. He's got a hell of a set of lungs on him. You know, at, um, yeah, I, th I just think, I think that's a, it's a really good it's a really good model for science and and yeah. and what science could be um, if it could bring place into its narrative, mm -hmm. if it had narrative maps, you know, um, and was working in that way, where that you know uh, that facilitated dialogue, more more dialogue, less competition. That's a great way. Of it's not it. very con. It's not very cutthroat. It as a field. Be. You know, it doesn't, uh, it's, 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 it's unlike a lot of other fields. Yeah. So, I mean, you spend a lot of, you, a lot of your time, um, uh, mentoring and training, um, uh, indigenous students too, um, in your discipline and, um, in undergrad, but, but also, uh, postgrad students, you know, training them up to, um, you know, basically come in and, and take your, your place. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. You know, you know it's um, yeah. there isn't that kind of um, I don't know. I just find that I, I, I dig astrophysicists. You can sort of be vaguely safe with them and know that they're not going to stab you in the back five minutes later. <laughs> and anyway, I uh, yeah, and I peg all that to uh, Sky Camp because Sky Camp settles you. But you do this, you make these connections, and you find those commonalities. So just in your constellations, so I mean, I guess let's move into that a bit, and then we can we can finally get a bit of bit sciencey after that, maybe in the last <laughs> few minutes. Three or hours of this, yeah. yeah, yeah, we 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 sort of been like you know struggling with all the ah, how do we come into this space? Um, you know, in a marketplace that's basically driven by a culture war, you know, how do we um, how do we work with this? you know, as a device that that's not a freaking hand grenade thrown into a room or a smoke bomb, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I really like your, um, you know, some of your work that's kind of, you know, it's just kind of mm, like, it's not woo woo. It's kind of wow, wow. Um, around the, the commonalities of the, the different stories for the same constellations from around the, 
oh, the world yeah. from cultures that have had no contact with each other. And I've heard that explained, you know, with patternicity and the whole idea of, oh, well, they, they make that shape. So, of course, the human eye would discern that shape and make those stories. But I'm sorry, I can't see seven sisters in Pleiades. It's not even seven freaking stars, bros. Yeah, most of the time there's not. How does everyone around the planet keep arriving at seven, even the ancient Greeks? And it's seven and the little one gets left behind and there's always a body of water and there's some wrong way sex stuff that happens there. In every single Pleiades story around the planet, you got your, um, the eagle is always an eagle. The two brothers are always two brothers, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. Talk up some of that story because that's, um, that's the stuff that uh, grabs a person. There's a couple of points that are interesting, and I want to talk about something else. I'll give the, an introduction to that, and then I want to talk about that Pleiades thing, because uh, that's still something we're working on, and it's, it's quite fascinating. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of different ideas and explanations about why the constellations are seen in similar ways around the world by different cultures, separated by space and time. And we actually have a team here working on that at the moment. And psychological sciences. I mean, they're they're testing the hypothesis that it's about human perception and and things of that nature and how we group things together. And we we just getting ready to publish. We just got the final proof of the, of the publication. It's going to come out in Psychological Science, the journal, mm. and it's on this idea. And what we've done is we've gone through and taken twenty seven or twenty eight different sort of databases of constellations different cultures around the world we use the ones that are mostly in stellarium and then we we put patterns in we sort of graph the patterns of those constellations and we perform mathematical analysis to show how often they concur with each other what happens which ones are coming out maybe ones we don't think about are coming out and we got all kinds of crazy results from that which i haven't looked at in a while even though the mm. paper's about to come out but um you know that's one of the ideas we're, we're looking at and that may not be the same one it could be something different mm. But that's one that we're definitely um, working on. And we've got a PhD student here doing that. Bridget Kelly is working on that um, exact problem in, in psychology. And the other colleagues, um, Daniel Little and Simon Cropper and Charles Kemp, we're all, we're all working together trying to figure this out. So this is fun for me because as an interdisciplinary scholar, scholar, I feel weird saying scholar. As an interdisciplinary researcher. Own it. Um, own it. You scholar. Go on in. Um, you know, you get to work in these different areas. And that's one of the things I love doing in indigenous astronomy is it mm. relates to everything. You know, the everything on the land is reflected in the sky and vice versa. As is above, so is below. And what that means for me as a researcher, whenever I'm learning about traditional knowledge relating to the stars, it has some terrestrial importance. Mm. Animals, plants, weather, yeah. climate, whatever. Yeah. So it's a reflected map. Exactly. So I'm, I'm learning it. I'm like, okay, I know this star, this star is a B class star, it's this magnitude, it's this distance, whatever. Most of that doesn't matter. Um, it relates to this animal. What is this animal? I'm looking it up and I'm sitting here, I have to learn all about the behavior patterns and ecology of some bug I've never heard of before, or some bird or whatever, a lizard or something. And I love that idea of going in and branching off into different areas. So this is fun for me because I'm, I'm kind of I'm not getting too deep into it, but I'm working with a team of psychologists. Mm. And that's all that's a whole world I've never really looked at mm. before in, in a research capacity. So that's a lot of fun. Well, and you have the pro you have the protocols now for doing that interdisciplinary research because the elders already taught you that. Well, exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> but psychologists don't know the don't know the sky map. No. So they've got no their stories have no place. So that's you gotta go you gotta go slow with them. Exactly right. And that's yeah. why I'm there. And even, you know. I know astronomy, 
and I know a little bit about some of the cultural aspects of it, you know, but this is where we're leading this project, you know, she'll get a PhD, we'll get a paper or two out, but this, this project doesn't stop in three or four years. We start working with the communities and now we're going to start bringing this stuff in. Hmm. But what, what, what all this gets around to what I find fascinating is, is the Pleiades, right? So the Pleiades, this beautiful star cluster um, that actually itself has several thousand stars in it. We just happen to see a few of the big, brightest stars in that. Um, it's currently passing through, or a dust cloud passing through it. And what we see within that, the reason it can look a bit fuzzy in all those images and quite blue, two reasons. Number one, it's, it's a reflection nebula. Those stars, the light is reflecting off the gas and dust in that nebula, and that's what we're seeing. Hmm. It wasn't formed in that nebula of gas and dust. And the stars are blue because they're O-class stars. They're really large, very hot, very bright stars. And so those, those, those things are important. You know, how many of them are there? How bright are they? The fact that they look a little bit fuzzy and cloudy, mm. the fact that mm. they're kind of blue. All how, many, how many are there? Well, okay, so there's about 3,000. <laughs> Not seven. The stars in that <laughs> now, we can see the brightest seven usually. Now, the tricky, funny thing about that is when you're looking at the, you just rank the brightest stars, the seventh one, Atlas and Pliny, they're very close together. Atlas is a much bigger, brighter star, and Pliny is only, I think, five arc minutes away. So it's very close to that. Now, we've been asking ourselves for years, why seven? Well, the truth is, um, there are plenty of cultures in the world with plays traditions where they're not seven sisters. You go to the mm. Latin people in Thailand, they're chickens. If you go to the Maori, they've got, you know, it's a totally different situation over there. Mm. But the numbers you can see depends on all your local environment. Mm. Really good observers, just with the unaided eye. Hang on a sec. But is, is, is Orion uh, like a rooster that's chasing the chickens? No, a different, different situation there. Okay. Um, that was a plow. Was gonna... A plow. <laughs> okay. Plow. Very much brought that agricultural aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, sorry, keep going. Right. Um, but you know, you can see, you can see twelve, maybe even fifteen, if you if you've got really good vision under ideal mm. observing conditions, you could mm. see several more, especially if it's up high in the sky. Mm. Uh, but usually, you only see six, maybe seven. And you know, before we get into the observational things, why that might be the case, because I talk about it in the book, is also that you know it tends to be around the world a group of seven women maybe sisters maybe women whatever a group of seven orion is usually a man or a group of men pursuing them and that v shape of the hyades in taurus is something protecting the girls from the man right uh in the greek traditions they said it was it was the bull but actually in the actual greek mythology there was no bull in that part of the story that's just the sky component of that hmm. but in the narratives all around the world um you find that that group of stars in the middle is, is acting as the protector and the defender. And like there's lots of different Aboriginal stories across the country that basically talk about how he's a womanizer and he's trying to pursue these seven young girls and they're too young for him and they're not interested in him and they're terrified of him. And the middle stars, maybe like her older sister is preventing him from getting there and she's mm. acting as that barrier. And it's that diurnal motion across the sky, that east to west motion. Because the Pleiades, you know, they'll move in this direction. The Hyades are behind, Orion's here. That's how they move across the sky. So there's always this perpetual pursuit. But why six? Why seven? Most of the time, most people see six. 
The reason for that is once you go beyond Pliny, the mm. faintness of the stars and how close they are together, just the human eye is not very good at resolving that. But there's cycles where the little one come back. Ah, right. That's one potential explanation. Pliny is a variable star. And its variation is not tiny, not huge, but it's enough to notice. And when it's at its brightest, it's right at that boundary of being bright enough to see despite being so close to Atlas. Hmm. But then it kind of fades away again and just dips below that probability of being able to see it. And its periodicity isn't a short time scale. It's like 30 years or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, that could explain why every 30 years or so, you know, if you've got really good vision, no light pollution, you might be able to see that seventh star. That's one explanation for it. Uh, my old thesis advisor, Ray Norris, he and his son published a paper where they were arguing that if you go back far enough in time, because, you know, stars are moving in three-dimensional space around the galaxy, they hmm. were in a position where Pliny and Alice were just far enough apart where you could more easily distinguish them. But that was 100,000 years ago. Hmm. Their argument was that goes back to Africa and everything. And, and look, it's a neat idea. I'm not convinced personally. I think that's kind of pushing the boundaries a bit. But, I, you know, I mean, maybe it is the case. But they were sort of saying, well, this is the, this is the original story that seeded everything else in the world. I'm hmm. like, ah, I, I'm... You know, no, no offense to them. I mean, maybe I can still be convinced. I'm, I'm not mm. so sure about that one, mm. but it's an explanation. And they've gone mm. through and, and, you know, done the calculations and the math and the observations to show that. But the one that I found need really some, need some other data sets, I think. Yeah, exactly right. And yeah. there's a lot more to it than that because you got to figure You're gonna out. You're going to have to triangulate that shit. Yeah, yeah, we know how orality works and stuff to a degree, but like that's 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 kind of pushing it, I think, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. um, but what I did find interesting and I write about in the book is from Dr. Noel Nana. So Dr. Noel Nana mm -hmm. is an Ungar elder, right? Yeah, I know him really well. Oh, do you? Oh, great. I've never met yeah. him, but I've heard oh, yeah. him. I was, I was talking to him the other day. Well, you got to get me in contact. Yeah. I'd love to have him. Oh, chat. look, we've been, uh, yeah, we've been walking country together. He's taken me over all his song lines mm. over, the, over the years. We've been walking country together for a long time. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, nice. I, I, I mentioned a couple of his song lines that he shared on Stargazing Live, which were mm. reflections of stars in the sky. Yeah. But the reason he said that, at least in that part of the of Australia, why there's a seventh sister, it's not a star at all. It's a planet. Venus, eh? I don't remember if it's Venus necessarily. I'll check the book. I wrote the damn thing. Yeah, yeah. Write what I said, but I think it was one of the planets because the planets often go in retrograde. They actually move backwards. Yeah. Sometimes, um, as the planets are moving around and the stars don't go retrograde, they're always sort of moving in that prograde fashion. That sometimes one of the stars will come very close to or within the Pleiades. Mm. That's the seventh sister visiting them for a short time before she goes yeah. off. Yeah. And that's in a bigger cycle. Yeah. Yeah, and that was uh, that was happening recently too, if, as I recall. Um, or coming up, he was talking about it. Like yeah, it's coming up. you get these conjunctions and yeah. these sorts of things that happen on on these you know varying length of time scale. Mm. But well, I, I was uh, I was given a sky stone from the site where she went up. Oh, and and, and where she where she stayed there. So at the end of that song line, where she still is there when she's staying terrestrial here and that's from where she is they gave me one of those to carry around for is a that few the years formation? 
Yeah, I can't really say anything about it, but it's, yeah, it, but I, I I can talk about my experience of carrying that stone, and it was very, it wasn't yeah. easy, because yeah. it it would just go away, you know. I keep it in this oh. little bag, and then it, it's just gone, oh. and then I don't know. A couple of months later, I go check the bag, and it's back in it again. It's like way, <laughs> yeah, yeah, coming out of it, yeah. And it's but it's been gone for about uh, three years now. Oh wow. Okay. Mm. Yeah, just completely gone and uh, hasn't hasn't popped back yet. Mind you, I haven't checked for a while. I better go and have a look after. I got a reason to look, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's phenomenal. So you know, learning about uh, Dr. Nanup and his work out there, and and you know, just highlighting some of those elements that he's publicly shared, and just saying, you know, he's provided an explanation for this. It's actually because of the conjunction of 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 a planet with those with the Pleiades that that signifies that and I'm like that's that's a really good one too so I don't remember exactly which planet it was you can probably look in here and find that chapter but mm. uh, it was still it was still quite fascinating but but what I liked about all of those aspects is showing these long-term cycles that require a mathematical framework because that's the other narrative that gets thrown around is you know First Nations culture in Australia, they didn't, they didn't have math. Yeah, they have mathematics. Are you freaking kidding me? You have to, you know? And these, the astronomy is full of examples of the application of mathematical knowledge. Hmm. And these long-term, because you've got, you know, the world, the universe we live in is like all these different cycles of varying lengths and durations hmm. all overlapped and piled on top of each other in a weird hmm. way. Hmm. You've got to find out where those cycles connect. Hmm. So working out where even two or three cycles all connect together yeah. requires some requires mathematics. You have to figure that out. The hard bit about that is that most of that mathematical knowledge is in that realm of uh, restricted knowledge, hmm. either by age or gender, uh, yeah. because women's business actually carries a lot. Um, even just um, you know birthing yeah. stuff, it carries a lot of that mathematical stuff, yeah. and they can only tell you in the vaguest terms. Yeah. about how it happens but you know so there's some places where you you do a, a star map at, at conception mm. you know or at a certain point in the uh in the process which you know they're, they're very vague about that but a yeah. star map is made you know for that child and it's brought out at another time that it it that it informs um different things that happen at different stages um of development and you know different interventions that have to happen and and uh but also that's how they calculate um when it's when it's appropriate you know in the system and biologically um for another child to be born or, you know all this sort of stuff there's a whole heap of, there's a whole heap of um math in that apparently but you know of course they can't share it with us or with the world because it's restricted by gender yeah. Um, and then there's the more advanced stuff, which is restricted by age and um, initiatory status. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, that's a kind of a, well, you have to take a word for it. <laughs> that's one of the things that comes out in this. Which um, That's where it doesn't dialogue well with Western exactly uh, right. science because of, you know, there can't be that trust. There can't be a trust in an um, institution or a, a population at, at, at such massive scale. You can't have it. There's too many freeloaders and bad actors and yeah, all kinds of stuff. Mm. Yeah, on that on that note, that reminded me of a, you know of how the Western academic system when we okay so years ago, a student that um, 
I wasn't working with that student at that time, but they had they had been working with some elders and they had done an ethics form through the university, standard ethics thing, but they, they really wanted to make sure it was done right. Hmm. So the Department of Indigenous Studies there and then the university lawyers got together and crafted this ethics protocol. Hmm. And it became, a, I found weirdly convoluted to a degree where you were not allowed to if, if you, you know, okay, elders share knowledge with you, you weren't allowed to connect that knowledge to an elder. Mm. They were just P1 or P2 as participant one or participant two. And they were all mm. mixed around so you couldn't say who does what. I think there was there was some effort to try to be rigorous or something yep. in that. Yeah. But it ended up almost backfiring because when you're talking or writing about it or, or trying to, you know, put this out in the world, you can't say who the elder was. And then people yep. say, well, you're deliberately not doing that because, you know, you don't care, you don't know anybody. It's like, no. We know we're not actually allowed to do that because yeah. of the protocol that was developed. Oh, well, you must have done that. No, well, no, it was done in the Department of Indigenous Studies. But for whatever reason, the way that the thing happened to work out, that was a that was the end product. That you couldn't actually say which elder. The elders were listed in the back in the acknowledgments, mm. but you didn't know which one was P one or P two. Yeah, the disidentified. Thing. I found that to be really mm. not a. For the work well, is the tiniest violin in the world playing for your uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for your inconvenience there because I mean as an indigenous researcher um, everything is a um, is a high risk research activity that has to has to have a massive math massive ethics application you know because as well, soon as it has indigenous in reality. it, it's a high risk you yeah, know, yeah. human research endeavor. It doesn't matter if you're doing a natural experiment or you're going back over publicly available data or you know doing anything, you don't get to have a low risk ethics application. Well, no, the, the, get, the challenge um, wasn't with the risk. The challenge and you often get six it. months, six months to a year of challenges on it. Yeah. And um, <laughs> we um, so we did one, uh, a colleague and I did one. And, and um, I don't know if you've ever been called before the ethics board. Yeah. or even heard of that happening but yeah we, we had to actually go and um you know spend a couple of hours before the board like um you know uh, defending and justifying what we were doing wow. but what what we were doing was um um we were studying uh it wasn't about aboriginal people or aboriginal knowledge it was um a reverse anthropology where we were um we were studying settlers Oh, yeah. settler behavior but you know publicly available data sets about that and um that just that had the most rigorous ethics application i've ever seen um, their concern was that we might be um doing a negative portrayal of an ethnic group and it might be a bit racist kind of thing. <laughs> so uh, now this 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 one this this ethics thing they did they did it wasn't there's nothing wrong with the ethics and of course it had to be you know to to try to minimize all the, the issues and everything there was nothing wrong with that the the, the problem with that one compared to the other ones i've been with mm. the elders weren't allowed to be associated with our knowledge yeah the stuff that i've done the elders like yeah of course we want to be associated with our knowledge yeah they have the choice to be named or not and in some cases they say look i don't want to be named so I'll just say an unnamed elder, mm. but most of them have been like, yeah, I want to be named. Yeah. I'm the one who's given I own that. that. I'm accountable for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's why in here, you know, there'll be a couple of places where I say an unnamed elder said something. And, but a, a couple of times they've actually changed because initially they're a bit reluctant a little, because they don't quite know what's happening. So like, all right, I, I, I just I don't want to be named. And then later on, I've actually 
sort of written a publication and sent it back to them and said, this, look, this is some of the research we've been writing up with the other elders. Hmm. Do you want to be named or not? And they're like, oh, actually, yeah, this, yeah, I do want to be named. So they actually sent the new form where they did want to be named. Hmm. Um, and that was really great. And, and John, John Barris was one of those people where initially he wasn't sure, but he was happy for that to be done later on because he saw what it, what it really meant. I think initially he wasn't sure what that, what was going on, what that really meant. Hmm. He's been extremely excited about that, and his family was too. And I told him about the book, but he, he passed away a few years ago. He was fairly young. He was only in his 50s. Um, but he was probably one of the people on the island who had the most in-depth knowledge of astronomy. Hmm. But um, so, yeah, because there have been times when we're doing work with this, the elders and stuff, and then we put it out in the public sphere. And people, well, how, well, how come you didn't name the elder in that? Well, but this is the, this is all based on this elder. How, how, why didn't you do that? And it's, it's almost like an attack. Like, no, we know who the elder is. We, we couldn't do it on that project because the ethics, for whatever reason, mm. they, we couldn't name that elder with that knowledge. So all mm. the other stuff that I've been doing since then and otherwise has always been sure that that, that choice is in the hands of the elders, mm. not in the hands of the university, which was, which mm. was part of that application process that they had done that I wasn't, wasn't so sure about. Mm. Um, so that's why it's funny this the ethics and governance side yeah. of thing in universities it, it kind of highlights a lot of the problems with them um, you know with uh, non-indigenous law if you like yeah. is that you know it's um it's amorphous and nebulous it's um you know you can do unethical things legally and it's kind of fun you can be it. you can be forced to not do ethical things uh, legally yeah. You know what I mean? Um, it, yeah, like it, uh, some ethical paths are, are illegal, you know. So that's why that way they, a lot of elders call it. It's it's only a half law, like yeah. it's not a complete law. So our law is complete because it's you know it's inalienable and it and it covers everything and ensures ethical behavior in every situation. It's in that landscape, but then also reflected in the night night sky. So we have that star law, and that's um that's inalienable and it's <laughs> you can't uh you can't break that law exactly right and you can't break that law. law you must behave in good relation and um and you must behave ethically you know in, in all situations relating to that yeah or you um you know you got consequence yeah no exactly right and yeah and that's the other thing they say is you know the western law changes constantly what was illegal yesterday is legal today and vice versa is constantly changing yeah. it's, it's set it doesn't mean over long periods of time it doesn't change which is another one of the topics mm. in the book is this idea that indigenous knowledge is, is just rigid and static and doesn't change well it has to yeah. change if you're going to be describing the world around you it has to change because the world around you changes exactly the sky changes yeah. and everything changes and you know there's always a season for everything mm. yeah and look, that, that's not to say that there's, you know, that somehow that law is the result of some kind of deficient culture, you know, or evil, evil culture or evil identity that, that is Western. It's, it's purely, and I keep coming back to this, but it's purely an issue of scale. Mm. You know, once you scale, it's difficult to have story with place. Mm. You know, stories are always coming from some other part of the world that, um, you know, you're not sure what's what's the name of the city that Oedipus come from again. Oh, I can't remember that. And so there's your psychologists with no story, with no place-based story. You know, and you know it's um, 
you know, at scale, there can be no place. Everything's placeless. Everything is space. And um, except for ironically, when you're studying space. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been it's been quite an interesting process of this now because we're we're excited to get a couple of the elders down to start doing some stuff with the book and um, nice. You know, we I I'd made I say we I'd I'd made the decision that um, all the royalties of the book should go to charity. So one of the things I'm happy with about the book is we we set up a charity with what's it's actually a, a recognized formal charity, but we're also auspiced by the Royal Society of Victoria. Mm. So all the royalties of the book for Australian sales go into that charity. From that charity, the board will, we, you know, we award scholarships and projects and things for First Nations communities and students. All of the sales, all the royalties from any sales in Aotearoa, New Zealand, mm. the SMART group, which is the Society for Maori Astronomy and Research mm. Traditions. That's a Maori run exclusively Maori run society. I think they have seven or eight people in there. It's chaired by Pauline Harris, right. a Maori woman. And the, I think the first uh, Maori astrophysicist, like who has a PhD in, in physics uh, sort of thing. And then Rangi Matamua, who, who wrote this book I'm talking about. He's yeah. well, and all other international sales will go to um, Native Skywatchers, which is a not-for-profit education organization run by Annette Lee, a Lakota astrophysicist. Right. All right. Well, this is really important. We've got to get your sales up. We're going to make sure that. Well, that's why I'm doing all this. There's got to be uh, there's going to be massive amounts of sales, and unfortunately, for that one, you're going to have to take one for the team because the only way to sell a book now is to get it in the middle of a culture war. All right. So that's it. That's what we need to do. We that's need to make sure no that what. this is igniting a massive culture war. And one where preferably where you'll get cancelled by both sides, because then everybody will be hate, hate reading your book, you know, so we got to make sure you get cancelled left and right. Uh, and that everybody hates you. You could, sorry, bros, you're gonna have to take one for the team. Yeah, that's, that's, you're gonna have to be white Jesus. Well, here. funnily enough, throw yourself funnily on enough. fire because, uh, yeah, no, if, if, if that happens to you, you, you get cancelled at that grand scale, then, uh, yeah, you sell a few million copies and, and, and that's what's like going to, uh, you know, it's it's really important that we get those funds to those. Well, that's those exactly causes. it. And that's why yeah. I can feel shameless about making that book and trying to get it out there because I'm not making a dime off of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, on that note, which maybe it'll be, maybe it's perfect timing. In October, I go on sabbatical to um, University of Heidelberg in Germany mm. to study the apocalypse for 10 months. Nice. Okay. <laughs> well, that's the place to do it. Apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic studies. So that'll be oh. interesting. Well, that's that's going to be very important because out of that region, all the weird stuff that's informed yeah. eugenics and all kinds of stuff has happened, and a lot of it weirdly coming out of um, uh, studying Eastern philosophies. Yeah, particularly yeah. some of the older, you know, when when those uh, from those civilizations that crumbled in in India, that were very hierarchical. You know, there's a lot of stuff tied into celestial business. That's um, that's these great ages and cycles you know, moving through these different uh, eras of hierarchy. So you have that uh, golden age, you know, of your priests and kings. And then you have your silver age of the warriors, you know, the military. And then you have your bronze age of, you know, all the merchants. 
And then you have your age of clay, which is like everybody's equal, which is, you know, regarded as a, a, a horrible sort of a thing. But, you know, we look forward to the time when it comes back full cycle to a golden age again. So that whole idea of a return to a golden age and a priestly caste and an Aryan race, um, which is also connected to those ancient Greek ideas of the Hyperborean myths in the north. Um, you know, these, all of that sort of um, you know, feeds into um, a lot of the fascist and neo-fascist ideologies that are running through the world like a wildfire right now, which is why oh, your yeah. neo neoconservatives and libertarians are always, the idea is, you know, make American great again, that's harking back to this golden age. And you'd be surprised how many of them are very much informed by those Eastern philosophies that are grounded in um, some sort of warped cyclic astrology business. <laughs> yeah, well, so uh, Steve, Steve Bannon, who's, who's been a architect of a lot of this disinformation and everything, and uh, a lot of these movements, you know, he's very much informed by uh, Eastern philosophies that he's been studying since his youth. Um, yeah, a lot of it's grounded in that. And, and all of that, uh, man, I tell you, I tell you, coming out of the Germanic region, you know, a, a lot of the philosophy that's informed a lot of the disciplines, a lot of the science around the planet right now has been made by um, weird semi-mystic, you know, gurus and pseudoscientific philosophers coming out of, of that region. Um, so, yeah, if you're going to study a rapture ideology, which is like, you know, you have to have the, and, and you're a whole accelerationist thing of, yeah, bring on the apocalypse, this longing for the rapture so that we can reset and go back to the golden age. It all came out of there. So you're at ground zero there, bros. Yeah, it's going to it's be like going to the Tunguska, Tunguska site to take readings from that, uh, that big uh, meteor. That's what I'm there. focusing on, funnily enough. It's meteorite yeah. impacts in the end of the world. So, yeah. Fantastic. Motif for that. So. Bros, this is, that's going to be amazing. And anyway, so you, in terms of philosophy and ethnography, you're at ground zero for uh, rapture ideologies there. Oh, yeah. And um, and pretty much all of the stuff that's setting fire to the Twitter sphere and everything else right now, um, yeah. So yeah, so it's, it's got to be the natural evolution of your work. I can, I can run off to Germany <laughs> when I get double cancelled. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can just look forward to that because that's what's going to make money for all these worthy causes. Yeah. Nothing sells like cancellation, bros. Yeah, well, that's got to get yourself cancelled. It's the yeah. only way. Nobody wants to buy a book from somebody who's got their shit together. Yeah. I'm going to buy a, a book from a demonic Jordan Peterson type. That, that Nothing sells better than that. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, grab your telescope, clean up your room, and buy my book. <laughs> yeah, clean your room. <laughs> grab your telescope. Clean your telescope. That's the name of your, <laughs> your next book. Uh, <sighs> All right, bros. Well, I think I think we're I think we're spent. Yeah, so get a bit more sciencey with you, but nah, it's not half. Always, always, half always time in the future to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good luck with it, bros. Make sure you get plenty of rest, plenty of water, and don't worry about the little stuff. Yeah, <laughs> get in there. Take one for the team. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll looking forward to seeing the stuff you got coming up with uh, the elders. Uh, oh, coming around and talking up uh, as as the as the book sort of starts to take off, that's going to be some really good you know, dialogues coming out there, and oh, that'll be fantastic. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to learn a lot of things. Um, yeah, got to get Gilla Anderson up there talking up stuff as well yeah. because um, 
sovereignty is not going to happen without him. Hey, That's my right. thing, I, I did a, I forgot all about that. Yes, I did. Yeah, do you're, you're, you're the second one down on that. So. Sweet. Nice. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Great chatting with you. Okay, but a man. Do it again soon. Yeah. We'll, we'll be in touch. Yeah, yeah. Talk awesome. soon.